Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello all, welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with you, and I have another interesting video, or since a video recording for you, for this Pride Month. As we are celebrating Pride Month, it is a focus of bringing in more people, more of those places of intersection with uh, not just being LGBT, but also being a person of color. Now, that aside, we also need to get into our classic disclaimers, which is the standpoint that this podcast is for education and Entertainment purposes is not constitute working with a licensed mental health provider, so please seek out one in your area. So I'm going to introduce you today to someone that we have danced back and forth at various uh, networking events, and at their most recent one, I heard about some of the work that they are doing, and I thought, oh, we need to have this on the program. So I want to introduce you to Dana, the Theraactivist Johnson who is a master's social worker and identifies as they, them, and theirs. They are a transgender, non-binary community activist, author, documentary filmmaker, and DEI and B specialist. And a personal, uh, personal development trainer, Dana's an author and filmmaker of the memoir, The Thera of Activist, They, Them, and Theirs, a narrative embracing identity, intersectionality, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. The Thera Activist embodies a therapeutic activist approach while serving and empowering people of color, LGBTQIA plus communities, and marginalized populations. Dana serves as the LGBTQ Commissioner, Pride Initiative Co-Chair, and board member of the Coast Pride LGBT Center for the County of San Mateo. Dana, the Theraactivist, is the director of Youth Housing of Rainbow Community Center, Contra Costa County, that's a mouthful. In this, ro- in this role, they are providing professional development training and resources to county offices of educational staff on the ways to serve LGBTQI plus house hosts houseless youth. They also provide emergency housing services to transitional age youth. Dana has 18 years experience counseling and serving justice involving youth. They are motivated in assisting in the implementation of inclusive policies and and protocols and passionate about providing LGBTQ plus equity services, social justice, and activism to marginalized communities. For me, more details, you can you regarding the therapist, visit the therapist, the activists.com. So Dana, welcome to Untying Knots. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Perry. And thank you for reading the bio, sharing with your community here about a little bit about me. Um, hello there to uh, Untying Knots community. Thank you for having me as well. Yeah, pleasure to have you. So as I always started with the question is like, how did you get here? <laughs> well, hearing that bio, it, it took some time to get time to get where I'm at. But um, honestly, I would say back when I was actually young as in high school, 
Um, mm-hmm. I started my activism role and was really trying to uplift at that time um, LGBTQ plus athletes, more mm-hmm. so um, playing uh, basketball for the women's basketball team that I went to Berkeley High at um, and uplifting mm-hmm. at that time those that may identify with and she, her pronouns or identifying more uh, cisgender uh, women, lesbians. And just wanted to really um, uplift that and uh, Mm -hmm. uplift, you know, the diversity there. And then it took me on a whole round to when I got to college and I learned um, how the work that I was doing was really highly impacted in a lot of my um, social work dreams Mm -hmm. and the passion I have for social work and activism. And so um, I ended up continuously continuously working to there um, and doing a lot of advocating um, mm-hmm. in a lot of some pro bono spaces um, to kind of create a little bit of visibility and representation for myself and then brought me into the place to where I'm hopefully journey now and continuously in that journey. Um, I do want to uplift that um, my first actual community work was done um, with Hayward Lambda's youth gay prom um, Mm -hmm. and that was my first actual want to say official lgbtq plus job size community work um servicing young folks i enjoy and i'm so passionate about really trying to uplift and um support services representation for our youth that are identifying as lgbtq plus um and those that are intersecting as poc and so um that really brought me even more of a closer, closer walk with um, doing the work specifically for LGBTQ plus community members. And it was pretty impactful, you know, being a fresh new social worker at that time and really Mm -hmm. being able to engage with community and learn more about the diversity within the social work um, background. Very nice. And how did the name Theraactivist come into being? Ha ha. So Theraactivist, um, stands for therapeutic activism. Um, And within that umbrella, uh, I do a lot of, um, I want to say community healing type of engaging um, in my activism. Um, I think that when folks kind of look at advocacy, um, they look at the physical constraints and the physical part of that. Um, But I'm not sure how many folks understand and see the mental component of that as well. Mm-hmm. And um, the engaging of, you know, your care, your self-care, working on your mental um, capacity so that you can give back and do this type of uh, physical type of advocating um, and helping engage in community healing. And so um, if you were to meet me and engage with me, you would understand that everything that I kind of consume especially based on my social work background is really Mm -hmm. in more of that therapeutic type of a um, component and so um, I I highly support um, and and engage with um, various different therapeutic and holistic healing um, for yourself Um, Mm -hmm. definitely think that that's a good motivator and I think it's a very good help for folks that may be dealing with some things and then um, just was trying to see how you can tie that into activism. And mm-hmm. that's kind of where it came with the therapeutic activism. Um, they're activists. And it's just like, 
besides a movement that I'm trying to do, but then also just more of an engagement of, you know, the work that is being done in so many different um, areas of activism. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, as I shared, you know, folks look at it one way of doing advocacy, but there's so many, I think, other ways that it can be done. And I'm just trying to uplift the therapeutic activism part of that advocacy. So that's where it all came from. Very nice. I'm just kind of curious, how would you deal with those in our field? And also depending on when they were trained and where they were trained, who feel that that activism isn't part of our role? Yeah. So, you know, that's an interesting question that you came up with. And and it's it's very, very of truth. Some folks feel that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wouldn't say when I try to do this, this work, I really look at the fluidity in it. And so Mm -hmm. it would, for me, it's not that it's not part of our role. I think that our role, besides trying to support folks individually, I think trying to support groups and um, marginalized spaces also. So that's kind of how I tie it to where, Mm -hmm. yeah, it is my role. I'm an active, I'm an advocate. Um, I'm a community activist. And so how can I engage and help uplift community that I'm in actually empowering and that I'm working with. And so, um, I mean, people have their right to feel how they feel. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, you know, when you're looking at a person and you're working with them individually, um, they may intersect in a bigger type of a space. And mm-hmm. if you're really trying to support that person, then I think that trying to see, you know, how they intersect, um, that is part of your role. And if they're intersecting in bigger, larger support groups and services, um, then you are kind of doing that work. But how folks feel, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I feel differently. But <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I asked that because I just also think about the varieties of images that come up for what it means for us to do this work mm-hmm. and where that energy gets put. and. Some would say, we're not here to be activists, but yet, in many ways, as you just described, we are activists at the mm-hmm. same time. And where, what is, and that's one of those things of where that's being dictated is something we have to look inside ourselves for. Do we want to stay in some sort of little box or do we want to be in this broader place? But that's something that we figure out as we do this work. And it looks different for everyone, you know, but the hope is, as me and you are sharing that, we really see, besides like the different avenues of folks that may be in therapy, the kind of maybe things that aren't visible is that mm-hmm. a- advocacy. And, I, and mm-hmm. I wonder how many people, you know, look at those type of parts when doing mm-hmm. this work. And is that what has led to you creating your book and film? <laughs> Well, thank you for tying that in. I would say, um, yes, visibility was a very big key of that. Um, The book is a memoir, so it it touches on my lived experience, but goes deeper, kind of a look of um, identity, intersectionality, diversity, Mm -hmm. that equity, inclusion, trans visibility, Mm -hmm. um, pronouns, and then um, how to engage with transgender non-binary folks. Um, I've noticed being transgender non-binary and identifying as that, um, folks always kind of have to feel like they need to put me in a box. 
of being transmasculine or mm -hmm. and that's just it and so um what my hope is through the book and film is to really educate folks um, on the non-binary community on the fluidity of us um on that being what's looked upon as a third gender um mm -hmm. and then a little bit of the lived experiences um the intersectional pieces you can see is that i'm black um lgbtq plus community member so trans non-binary mm -hmm. um but also um how educated and having a master's in social work a lot of folks um see me and they see my dreadlocks and mm -hmm. the first thing that they think is criminal or mm -hmm. um other type of i would say um <laughs> not educated very yeah. much so um and then when i'm engaging in terror and telling them you know oh i got a master's in social work and then it goes into a oh well you're not like the others that maybe mm. um and so i'm really trying to uplift us to have locks that you know don't judge us just based on how we look or from our environments i come from a very um marginalized impoverished urban community um being mm. raised in oakland and so when i'm in some of my conservative spaces um, it's like you're from Oakland. It's 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 really like for me. It's like wow, how they have already judged based on what you think folks from Oakland should look or should be acting for. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like you know, don't just judge. It's just based off of you hear those things. Um, and then you know, talking about those that um, may be within religion and that spiritual mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. um, I was raised Pentecostal. And being an LGBTQ plus person in the Pentecostal church was really a big trauma that folk that I had to go through. And so I really touch on that, too, just to try to, again, um, help be affirming to those that may have the same intersectional identities and may have the same things they went through. And just how you can empower each other that may have been going through, you know, a lot of different triggers from just mm -hmm. being wanting to be authentically who you were. Mm-hmm. And so as you're going through each of these various things in both the filmmaking and the book, how do you sort of create the tone for it or set the tone for it? So um I would say I was a lot, I was very motivated uh to get my story out there. Um, mm -hmm. everyone might have been going through a various different type of journey, but they mm -hmm. all have a story. Um, also, the I was starting this right, I want to say probably the, the year before the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. Then the pandemic hit when I was trying to capture all my footage and write at the same time. So uh, the shelter in place actually mm -hmm. may have helped because there was really not much you could do but sit and kind of write and mm -hmm. and then it the film is a short doc documentary and so um just gathering all those images together and then working with very small team um mm -hmm. to put out a pretty amazing documentary so what people told me so you know that that probably was i want to say the support there and where are people able to find the documentary if they want to be able to have a chance to watch it if they've gotten their hands on the book so far? 
Thank you for asking that. So if you are interested in the documentary, um, I actually, me and my co-filmmaker, we show this um, based on screenings. And so organizations mm-hmm. or folks or people um, can reach out to me um, from my website, which is www.theiractivist.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically you can put in an interest of wanting to bring that film to your space. Um, and then I, I set up the contracts of it. But right now, because I'm trying to protect my intellectual property, mm-hmm. um, I have not put it on any mainstream um, sites or anything. So, Right. Well, maintaining that control is an important one, as Ms. Michaela Cole more than showed was, especially with that dance with uh, capitalism. So what does it feel like dealing with this aspect of our of intersectionality with these many intersections that we have, considering for some it is so easy to say that there's only maybe one box or one place or one intersection of identity as opposed to multiple intersections of identity? Um, I think my hope is that one folks can progress from just trying to see things in one like box. Like I think when people are looking at identity or intersectionality as pieces too, it's very black and white. And mm-hmm. I don't think that they get the fluidity and the gray of that and mm-hmm. how, you know, these, these identities, these intersectional identities, they're like constantly evolving so like my identities may grow (laughs) as I and I just don't know if people understand that some and I think also I don't understand I don't think people understand when really engaging and getting to understand and know a person you have to look at their intersectional makeup so you can't just look at just maybe those that are visible but those that are invisible too to really you know, engage with a person and really get to know them if you are servicing them, really understand them. So I, the, there's a lot of binary in our, in our society, in our system. And I'm hoping that the progression could be more movement into, you know, there's a lot of non-binary out there. And then looking at that, if we bring it back to our intersectional pieces and our intersectionality, that can be also, there's a lot of non-binary and thin intersectionality. So just not trying to make it like you need to just be here and this box and here and this box, and that's okay. But what about mm. those that will be in between both of those boxes? Like, how do you um, bring visibility to them? How do you make them feel belonged and included? And that's part of the uh, DIE and B because I'll admit that's the first time I've seen D I E and B. So, so the belonging. So let's talk about that. Cause right. I'm sure at this, at this point day and age, if anyone's the people are out there, they're aware of diversity and inclusion work, but tell us a little bit more about adding the B portion into it, the belonging portion. Right. So the belonging part is something that I think um, just with other um, community leaders that I'm working with, that's doing this work. Uh, for the last past few years have really been trying to uplift more. And so like you shared, the diversity, equity, inclusion part, I think folks are starting to get along and understanding of that. But then looking broader on it is um, for 
you to really say that you're accepting that person and bringing them to the table and for you to really say that you are um, being fully representative, you have to let that person feel that they're belonged as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can bring me to the table just to say that you have me there. But if you're not hearing my voice or if you're not letting me express and try to bring um, the work that I'm doing to this space, then you're not having, I'm not belonged there. So I'm there maybe just to check off a box for you within a DEI, but am I belong there? Are you accepting me there? So a lot of times with, I would say, I've noticed within LGBTQ spaces that I'm in, but non-LGBTQ spaces, yeah, we want someone in our non-LGBTQ plus space that identify in the umbrella, but I'm not accepted and belong in that space. Mm-hmm. So when I am bringing my voice it's not listened to, or when I'm bringing up things, I'm not even called on to, to express it. But uh, one of my peers that maybe don't identify as LGBTQI+, they are accepted there. They'll bring their voice and they'll say some of the same things I'm saying, and that's accepted. But then it's as if when I'm saying things, I'm not even like being listened to. So the hope mm-hmm. is that with the belonging piece of that is that I'm not just being brought, but I'm also being a part of that change. I'm part of that um, community there. Um, I think there's someone that was sharing me something that um, you're even you're either a part of um, the table or you're a part of that that space or you're on the menu. And so the hope is for me that the belonging piece looks like I'm not so much more on the menu, but now I'm a part of that greater change. That is very deep. And that's also the idea that we're on the menu is not exactly a message that's usually talked about being at these ta- about these tables, it's let alone true. the idea of building your own table too. Yeah. Which see how in its own way feeds back into the idea of being that they're activists (laughs) yeah um trying to build my table for others that aren't Mm. usually belonged in spaces Mm. um and trying to see how um as a community we can be a part of those i guess i would say larger type of spaces that's really making those changes um Mm. That's what I'm hoping. So I'm I'm really striving to be a part and belong in those spaces and be heard um, and be accepted um, and be listened to. Mm-hmm. That's the their activist whole motivation. Hmm. So to that end, also noticing that in your bio, a lot of your work has been done with youth, which is a place where there should be natural curiosity and natural growth, natural questioning. What made you focus there versus in the other areas, especially with this work? Well, I say some of my, a lot of my work have been with youth, but some of it is with adults as well. Um, The work that I do with the Pride Initiative, um, Mm -hmm. that's sterly more so with um, adults. And that's looking into health equity initiative services um for 
adult and older adult community members. Um, I, I, I would like to say though, the reason of the focus too for the youth is because a lot of times the belonging piece of their voices aren't being brought to the space, especially mm. when we're looking at things that are of affected to them. Um, like the work I'm doing um, with LGBTQIA plus um, houseless youth. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of those bigger meanings I'm at, uh, the youth voice is not being brought up at all and they're not being ex accepted or belonged in that space. But that's who we're really trying to service. So when you want to hear from them on how we can better service and support their needs. Um, and so that's kind of why the, again, focus with working with the youth and the younger peoples, because I'm really trying to uplift and empower the importance of their voice as well mm -hmm. in some of these spaces. I mean, that's also another real strong battle. Um, I'm hoping that a lot of places can really do this type of transcend from being inclusive to expansive. Because I think once mm. we become more expansive, then at that time, then all these various different voices and representation will feel belonged in her. Hmm. It makes me wonder, why are we having so much of this issue of not having these voices heard and understood? Because I know this has come up in other talks I've had with other people and so forth. But I'm just kind of curious, what is it that seems to keep that those voices from being heard and understood and accepted, in you your know, opinion? In my opinion, I think, like, it's as if adults don't want to hear the youth voice. It's like they're checking off a box, like, oh, well, we're taking care of this. Good. And on to the next thing, or don't want to actually uplift and empower like these these other marginalized subgroups that are important. Um, mm -hmm. And if I'm speaking with the youth, that's number one. If I'm in a meetings and it's like, well, we'll work on getting a youth here or we'll work on getting a youth type of advisory board or community board to give that representation. And then it's like, it's a group of adults <laughs> that's all maybe having their own internal like thing of power dynamics that they want and not even understanding that, you know, that power is what's standing in the way of us really supporting and doing good work with the youth. Hmm. So it's kind of a privilege to be honest. It's like, it's a privilege of an, an adulthood that they have. And it's like, well, I don't want to hear from a, a younger person. They're not saying this, but when you're not accepting and allowing them to come into the space, that's basically what you're saying. Um, and so maybe understanding the privilege of that too. I think, you know, those privileges that we don't see, one could be adult in how you may feel when a young person is around. You don't see how much privilege you have in that space. And then are you allowing that youth there? Or even the aspect of, because let's be frank, fundamentally, at one point, that adult was a kid. <laughs> and obviously, it was that standpoint of now they get to be heard versus where they were in the house. It's like, how, it's, it sort of brings that aspect of what caused them to lose the perspective, to lose I, the empathy. 
it could be that maybe when they were youth, like you said, they weren't heard. Um, and so they picked up that notion and they picked up that type of feeling as if maybe another youth don't need to be heard. And maybe they should step outside of maybe some things that may be triggering them and see how, you know, they can be more transforming in that area and, and mm-hmm. really help. Because I think they could be that. Who knows what what trauma folks are bringing with them that they may have went through as a young person and, and their voice is not being heard and maybe being shut down. Mm-hmm. And that takes some work that they got to really do on themselves um, to work on that. You know, maybe they were told that your voice isn't something that is of an importance. And I'm sorry if they were, um, but I think maybe we can try to be more expansive and change that whole thing that, you know, these voices aren't of importance. Maybe that, that'll kind of gear us to some better, good all around social justice work where everyone feels belong. And who better to do that than a their activist? <laughs> I hope so, Perry. I hope so. It's, it sounds like some big shoes to fill, but I'm trying. I'm trying one day at a time. Very much so. I think that's a perfect place for us to take a break here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with Dana Theractivist, they, them. And we'll be back shortly for the second half. So stay tuned, folks. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with Dana Theractivist, master social worker, and they, them. So in our first half, we talked a bit about <clears throat> where the name Theractivist came from, what the work of a Theractivist has been, uh, a bit about the filmmaking and book that is connected to all of that. But let's get a little more into the work. So I'm in no, I mentioned that you work with a lot of youth. What has been your experience being their activist, working with youth and especially LGBT youth? Um, well, it's amazing um, working with 
LGBTQ plus youth. Um, me and that voice um, and that representation kind of that they're hoping that they can have out there. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the support for those youth um, that aren't really out mm-hmm. and may be feeling unsafe and how I can help support um, them with, you know, finding safe spaces um, mm-hmm. and, and being comfortable in who they are. So um, I think youth working with them because it's something, you, you know, it's kind of like it's something different every day. It's an amazing group to work with. Um, they teach me just like mm-hmm. I'm trying to teach them and trying to help them. So um, I think that work is great. I've worked with youth in so many different capacities and so many different spaces need to be with working with um, uh, foster youth system involved youth. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, some now youth that are um, houseless and just really seeing, you know, they are our future and how can we better support and help them and create mm-hmm. better spaces for them in the capacity that we can. And what have you been seeing much more about their mental health too, being in these experiences of being sadly on the street, being houseless? Yes. Um, I, I, I think their, their mental health has been real kind of bad. I've noticed mm-hmm. um, with especially those that are houseless, um, you know, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from or just shelter in some safe space um, to lay your head down. Um, and the and the trauma and the mental challenges that that may bring and then not even really being in a space where you can kind of like get the support for those mental health mm-hmm. um, challenges. And, and, you know, some of it, these youth have been kind of houseless for um, a while and going in and out of like various different systems um, mm-hmm. and the trauma that all that, that they're bringing and then not even finding a, a space of where they can get um, support to work through that. So, um, I've seen some youth that have really needed some, um, some mental health services very strongly. Um, and it just so happened in the space that I'm in, we do do wraparound services to where I can try to uh, mm-hmm. pin them into a clinician or a, or a therapist. Um, but the, I can only help so many um, that I see mm-hmm. based on, you know, how various different funding streams are. So um i'm really i'm really concerned with with that population and you know there's so much that they got to deal with trauma wise um and then some you know challenges that they may have had that they still hold with them um the burnout and then you see the substance abuse used to try to um cope with those various different things in the mental health is it's really sad, Perry. And so, you know, I'm hoping as a, um, I, I know doing a lot of this work just within the state of California, I'm hoping that, you know, we can really um, look at better servicing LGBTQ plus houses um, and providing those, those various different, really important um, wraparound pieces of getting them um, 
clinical support as well. Mm-hmm. And I imagine one of the things that also complicates this is the relationship with law enforcement too. Yes, um, <laughs> which is another um, inter- uh, unfortunate intersectional piece that some of them hold. Um, I've I've actually had to work with some houseless youth that um, just to get some type of shelter, they would commit a crime because um, they knew that they will be, you know, in some type of a space, maybe warehouse, as we would call it, mm-hmm. um, but still getting three meals a day. Um, and then when they're there, let's say if they do kind of identify and express their identity as um, one, of course, already being houseless, but then also being LGBTQ plus, um, not treated <laughs> very well. Um, and believe it or not, if we're looking at it from, let's say, like a DEIB type of space, mm-hmm. just for those youth in those type of spaces, um, the LGBTQIA plus are, youth are not belonged in more of the um, overall type of youth um, population mm-hmm. that may be in some of those spaces. And so that deepens our conversation of the belonging piece, that why is it always that LGBTQIA plus folks in whatever space they are in, even in these type of systems that um, traditionally are not very supportive of POC community members. Mm-hmm. But let's say if you're a LGBTQ plus and you are not identified as POC, no, you're not accepted, even in some of those uh, juvenile justice, maybe spaces with law enforcement. So again, some work that really needs to be done, Very really needs to be not. I think the governor is trying to make mm-hmm. a, a better pipeline um, for a youth that may be within the juvenile justice system. But then I'm, again, I don't know if the intersectional piece of those youth that are identified as LGBTQ plus are also being um, considered of servicing within those various pipelines. So I know this is also a tall ask, um, but for those who are not already in our field for doing this type of work, can you help them understand more about what that experience and identity or uh, that our intersectional identity that is encount- that our youth are encountering in these settings? Okay, and I'm going to be just very transparent, so hopefully this isn't um, triggering mm. to anyone. Um, but um, I, I would say if a lot of the folks that may be working in the spaces of juvenile justice that I have learned even have a background mm-hmm. of criminal justice work services, administration of criminal justice, or maybe political science Type of a background. So I'm sharing that to say very strongly law background, um, very strongly punitive, not mm-hmm. very understanding of rehabilitative, not very understanding of evidence-based services um, and how that can better support, especially our vulnerable population of um, LGBTQ plus youth. Um, and so I share that to say, um, Ignorance is very, very seen there. Mm -hmm. Um, And the support of language is not at all. And so if you are engaging with folks that may be um, within the trans community, 
um, the language that I've heard in some mm-hmm. of those spaces have been very terrible. Um, I do think too that the wraparound space services within that area is not very um, accepted and belong. So mm-hmm. they they have had like clinicians and therapists that. I would say juvenile justice is trying to work closely with to better service within the actual maybe detention centers or systems mm-hmm. that I, but <laughs> it's a, it's a power dynamic in there to where the, the various law enforcement officers may feel, you know, that there's only so much that the therapist should be allowed to do, or there's just only so much um, work that should be done. Um, there's definitely mm-hmm. boundaries and barriers that I see law enforcement trying to put on the other side with those that are doing the clinical work. And again, understanding the intersectional breakdown, you know, how are you really servicing these young people in these various different um, detention centers and systems if you're not even allowing those that really are trying to do that therapeutic and clinical work and giving them that opportunity to do that? is they try to put a lot of barriers on what can and how those services should look in these systems. Or or even that the way that the, what is the idealized version of them being rehabilitated looks like. And and who are you talking to? Because if you're talking to the law enforcement side, Mm -hmm. it looks real different on what they feel rehabilitation should look like. Um, And I think on the clinical side, you know. Not to mention also, because you mentioned it earlier, on the funding side. That part, because again, um, depending on a lot of these grant funding, what can you offer? And can you mm-hmm. just check off the box for those organiz- those larger grant grantors? Mm-hmm. Um, and then really honestly, they like to see, and it's, it's so, to me, sometimes it's so sad, the data collecting of how we're doing mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. things um, and looking at the quantitative and qualitative aspects. Um, the numbers help grantors see how they can better give funding to those that are a little bit um, less, less, <laughs> less marginalized, I would say. So mm-hmm. basically... If you have a lot of youth that you're servicing um, that may be victims of crimes, need to be hate crimes or whichever that may be, or how that show up, um, then you could get maybe a little bit more funding. Mm -hmm. But if they are not um, identifying as as folks with victims of crime, then you may not even get that funding stream to support, you know, houseless youth. So it's, 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 for me, it's remarkable of how it's like looked upon. It's like, well, if you're houseless, are you also a victim of crime? Because yeah, I'll fund that. Mm-hmm. But if you're just houseless, um, I mean, I'll try to give some services, but you know, you're not really like going through that much. Right. <sighs> I know. <laughs> I know. Which can be so self-defeating because it keeps it from it sort of keeps a way of perpetuating deeper problems 
or the aspect of, oh, someone's got to actually open themselves up to take on more problems just to get the help. Yeah. And if you think about it with a lot of the houseless youth, they're not very vulnerable. I mean, they've been through so much. So you're asking them to kind of give pieces of them that they probably never given and probably Mm -hmm. did give and was taken advantage of for giving that. Mm -hmm. But then a lot of the funders feel we need that if you want us to fund. I sometimes I wonder then if there a part of this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about that box. That there is a certain box and image about what that box is that's influencing not just the funders, but as you mentioned, the law enforcement and the nature of what we're talking about and some of the things people are looking to heal isn't necessarily about the, the certain image of vulnerability. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I think you're dead on it with that box part. Um, if you can intersect in a lot of different um, really uh, disproportionate type of things that you receive and not of, of maybe more supportive advantage, mm-hmm. um, then it's, it's sad, but that's what they want. <laughs> they like, they need to check those boxes off maybe to, to the folks that are providing the various different larger funding for them to provide to the mm-hmm. smaller spaces. It's a whole pipeline system that's very, very interesting, but challenging and, you know, not service-based in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I know you've already finished filming and all of that, but I think <laughs> would we see some of that in, in your work in the both the book and in the uh, film? I think you see um, in the book and film, you know, a lot of the, I would say, parts of things that I've done and tried to make some change in. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably where we still need to do a lot of work on. Um, especially with the work within the trans non-binary community. Um, Mm -hmm. I I, I touch on a little bit about Transgender Day of Remembrance as well. Um, And just the call of action that the hope is around that. I think, uh, again, that's more and more each year, the numbers of those that are being, um, you know, murdered just mm-hmm. for being their authentic self mm-hmm. um, is growing. Um, and so my work is really focused too on, again, the safety of mm-hmm. trans and non-binary folks um, and that visibility piece of it. I talk to some people and I share that I'm trans, non-binary, and they, they don't even really know what non-binary is. And so it's also an educational piece of that. And then mm-hmm. the pronoun use. Um, we haven't really touched on that much about pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's remarkable about the pronouning. And if you were to just identify as binary pronouns or she and he um, or him and her, mm-hmm. that's okay because people are comfortable with usage of that. But when you start to use they, them pronouns, um that is not very accepted in a lot of these more of um, 
heteronormative systems that I'm either engaging in or working in. Um, I'll go to some spaces and just say my pronouns and it's a question and folks are looking and no one else in that space either mm-hmm. say what their pronouns are. So again, that's some work that the third activist is doing is trying to normalize things like pronoun usage in a lot of different heteronormative spaces. Well, I think this is also a lovely se- segue into the myths and realities around mental health. And most especially, I'd like to hear from you, what do you think are the myths and realities around mental health from that standpoint of the non-binary, the pronoun usage side of things? Um, so a myth, I would say, and this is something as a non-binary person that I'm also noticing with my intersectional as being Black is that um, I don't need therapy. I don't need mm-hmm. to go to see a therapist. I don't need a clinician. Um, I should just go to um, my community church, talk to um, a community pastor. Um, I think also the the myth of um, you know mental health is something that we are, we it's kind of like not visible. It's like oh well mm. we don't have those issues. That, you know that's mm. not. And then it's pertained on race, and then sometimes a specific type of gender where you know that race might have that issue, or you know mm. those that identify you know in that gender. And so sometimes it's placed on well you probably have this mental health issue because you identify as trans non-binary, you know, and folks that, you know, want to transition, clearly Mm -hmm. they have to have some mental health issues. And it's like, wow. (laughs) You know, so I, I think that's some of that. And hopefully that's on the line of the thing you were trying to ask here. Well, I think it is. And I think uh, conversation was having with a client yesterday. Um, They were asking about, the aspect of mental health and growth and recognizing challenges. And I had to say, if we were looking at things on a scale of zero being having done absolutely nothing in relation to uh, DEI and B dealing with LGBT and so forth um, to being 10, that we were absolutely on our game as our field and profession, I would probably say we're maybe at a five the legal system is probably at a two mm-hmm. um there was one other system i was thinking of that was equally i didn't think had moved forward enough and had made that effort that it was still literally living in the last century mm-hmm. or should I say two centuries ago um mm-hmm. that our profession is still working with that and still struggling. And that even goes back to my question too about the idea about the theraactivists, that our job as therapists, mental health workers, isn't to be activists, or at least some I particular image of an activist mm-hmm. versus being here trying to save people. But you can also be saving people by advocating for the services mm-hmm. that they need. Very <laughs> I would true. say that. Um, Very true. And maybe um, looking at the thing, like, especially in those spaces like law enforcement, where it's a two, 
Mm-hmm. How can we advocate the importance of the that mental health component being there to at least try to bring it to a five? Because I agree, we are centuries back <laughs> when law mm-hmm. enforcement. I guess they're trying to progress, but their their progression goes very slow compared to a lot of different other systems I've noticed. Very and slow. and is very much tied, still tied in thinking that does not fit where we are here now and dealing with the issues we are dealing with here and now. Very correct. Very true. And uh, and I think it has to first start with um, seeing people as actually humans and not Mm -hmm. just like test animals. And I say that to say in a lot of the work um, that the language that they're using, um, uh, the the inhabitant or something they're say mm-hmm. or they'll say um the insubordinate or the or the respondent or just the wording of how they it's not uh putting this person as a person but it's mm-hmm. more putting this person in a box of you know more criminalized or just dehuman but as an object exactly which is not okay but I think mm. again, that's that system, and that's mm. um, they don't see it outside of an object, and it's just sad because it's not just working the work with adults, right? But then also youth, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of those juvenile justice systems, unfortunately, that I've been engaged in, um, the objectivism starts there, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like it's it's like they're trying to pipeline them to being adult criminals instead of trying to you know stop the recidivism rate. It's it's you're you're objecting them to make them feel as if you know they should continue and they should go on to the adult system. Hmm. So I come to the question: Is did the the system fail, or did the system do what it was designed to do? And depends on who you have in that talk that talk with, because to me, I think the system is failing a lot. But to those Mm -hmm. that are maybe trying to get funding to keep these systems open, they would feel no. And that they will actually feel that, you know, some of them are doing evidence based services. So they are taking steps towards what would be looking as as rehabilitative. But even with those evidence based services, you're not actually. looking into all various different identities and intersectional mm-hmm. pieces. And so you may be just trying to do a whole data service or a whole service to just serve one community, but then you're not looking at all the various different folks that may be made up within this system that might identify with different um, communities. So, And have different relationships, which means they also have different so let's call it metrics on what it means to trust. Very what it means to be vulnerable, and that is big. If we tie it back to working with young people, youth, um, mm-hmm. that trust. If you've broken that, and unfortunately, if any sometimes cases any adult has broken that trust for this young person, trying to get that vulnerability is going to be very very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know and. It's, it's just really, for me, it's disheartening because, like, how am I able to try to work if this there's already been an adult 
that has broken this trust that this young person had and now felt, you know, for survival and for their safety, um, they can't be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that's something to think about. And that's something that I think even as your work as a activist is something that you account for. Well, thank you. I'm trying. And that's, again, that's the activism in that space mm-hmm. because I'm advocating, you know, for us to try as providers to mm-hmm. kind of like, make, like you said, take them outside of this box and see this person and their intersectional identities and that they make up. And how can I service this person as a whole, how they come and how they're engaging? How can I service to probably try to build trust again in this person? Try to make this person feel that I'm a safe adult. Mm-hmm. Well, where would you like people to contact you at and uh, share with us, especially as we wrap up for this Pride Month uh, and continue this work, which Pride is not just the month of June, just like Black History Month is not just the month of February. It is every single day of the year That's right, living man. with it. This That's just right. happens at the time we get to, you know, put on <laughs> the good suits, put on the fanfare a bit more. But we live that every single day of the year. That's right. Thank you for saying that, Perry. We do. We're prideful 365 days of a year. Mm-hmm. So that's right. It shows up every day. But I would say if you're looking for me and want to kind of engage more and kind of hear about my work, uh, best space would be maybe one, my website, which is www.theiractivist.com. Um, I would say also... If you're looking at social media spaces, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Dana Theractivist Johnson. I'm on Instagram, Dana Theractivist. Um, and then Facebook, Dana Theractivist too. So I would just say if you put into your Google search, I do come up and pop up on Google uh, mm-hmm. at T H E R A C T I V I S T. That's at Theractivist. And you can find me. I'm out there. And thank you again, Perry, for having me. Uh, this was wonderful. It was wonderful engaging and having this conversation with you. Thank you for joining us and being here and share and continue to support that aspect of being that intersection we are in and our various types. And we need more of us to be able to recognize that we're also their activists, too. Agreed, agreed. You can come on over to the movement. <laughs> I'm taking all that's interesting. All righty then. So you heard that, folks. There's your call. (laughs) So stay tuned for more episodes. Uh, We have one more episode coming to uh, wrap up Pride Month, which I hope this one's one's going to be a fun one too. Uh, Different flat and definitely something that hopefully gets to our uh, blurredness. Or at least just our geekness is that. But uh, we have more coming up and uh, hope everyone is safe at this Pride season. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.